This is Germ Warfare, the battle of ideas. What were children reading in the 1900s? Well, a lot of the things that kids would consider Chinese torture treatment today in high school or college, those were the things that children often read for pleasure in the early 1900s. So, for real. Like what? Ivanhoe or Thackeray or any of your classics. Dickens. You know, the, yeah, oh yeah, Dickens. And, you know, they read these things for pleasure. And, you know, this is the thing that bothers me. Uh, Accelerated Reader is one of the common sources that librarians or teachers or schools will go to and use, you know, to direct a child. And if you look up a classic, you you might look up Oliver Twist and you might find 20 books that say they're Oliver Twist and perhaps by Charles Dickens, perhaps by somebody else, but they're not the authentic Oliver Twist. You have to really sort through things to find the unabridged copies anymore. So if you would talk to a child in high school and you would bring up, you know, Moby Dick or any of these classics and they would say, oh, I've read those. And then you, you have a perspective that you think things are not quite as bad as you're hearing about the educational system and so forth. But what you might find if you ask further questions, that it was not the unabridged. It would have been an adapted, a revised, or a even a graphic novel, which means comic book form today. What age group were these children? Well, Well, when you got into, say, Nancy Drew or Bobsy Twins or the hundreds of serial books, many librarians back then did not even allow those on the shelves because not because they were smutty or profane or anything like that. They just did not consider them the caliber of reading that they should have on their shelves of the library and make available to the children. Mind you, if you were... If you were used to reading Ivanhoe, you know, a Nancy Drew would have been a great step down as far as reading level. See, these were very, very basic. <laughs> a step down? A step down literary-wise. I'm not talking about whether they were... I'm not talking whether they were amusing. You know, when I was in third grade... You know, I read, I had a friend who had an older sister that had most of them. And so we would, I would get some and then she would trade me hers. And I think we'd read them all. And in fourth grade, there was a new one. And I pictured this old lady in their 90s or close to 100 writing out a new book to entertain us, not realizing that these were hack writers that did not exist as Carolyn Keene or Frank W. Dixon. You know, they were just from the Edward Stratomer syndicate. So, yes, these books were at a much lower level. And then they were changed anytime you went from a horse and buggy to a Cadillac. They just had to change the books. See, it was just a... I remember when I was in essentially grade one, uh, uh-huh. so I was about six or seven years old. I was learning to read things like run, Dick, run, see Jane walk, look at the dog. What were kids my age reading in the 1900s? 
they learn to read phonetically. Ours is a language of sounds. You see, the controlled, see, when you went to how you learned to read and how I learned to read, this was with a controlled vocabulary. This was where you looked at the word as a whole, as a picture. So you didn't necessarily know that F, what, you know, the sound of an F, the sound of an I, and the sound of SH. I go into that in my book. I actually have the teacher's manuals behind me, okay, from my first grade curriculum. And it tells you in there flat out, we do not teach the sounds of vowels until somewhere in second grade, till after they've already learned to, you know, look at a word as a picture, because the vowel sounds are generally unreliable and unnecessary. Uh-huh. I couldn't make that up or I'd be fantasy writing. What? Yes. And so this is how we were learned to read. So I didn't realize we were going to start out on this, but let's let's talk about this a minute, okay? Many, many parents are very familiar with the boxcar children. I don't know if you ever read that series when you were, you were young. Um, however, Gertrude Chandler Warner was a teacher, and she actually wrote the original boxcar children in 1924. Now, this was before it was widespread throwing out phonics and teaching word recognition instead. So in that first edition, there were words like harmonious and triumphantly and piazzas and delicatessen, okay? In 1942, you have to understand, they had thrown out phonics. You really had a whole generation of children who had gone through the school system at this time, and they did not know how to sound out words. They only knew the words from the controlled vocabulary. And so... Scott Forsman, I believe it was, had them had her rewrite the book. And the new book, of course, was dumbed down with the controlled vocabulary and had none of those words, those vocabulary words I just mentioned to you. You see, because it was already being changed. So I have the second book in that series was Surprise Island, and I actually do have an old copy of it. And it tells you flat out in the back of it, it says about the book, and it tells you that they use a controlled vocabulary. If there are any words that weren't uh, uh, readily available in a normal second grade basal reader system, then they would define the word in the context of the sentence. And all of these words were repeated at least three times. See, it's repetition, repetition, repetition. See, as Rudolph Flesch said in 1955, when he wrote Why Johnny Can't Read, you know, I think, and what you can do about it, he explained the difference in the reading methods. When you teach a kid to read phonetically, you teach them the sound of F, the sound of I, and then the SH, and they learn how to blend those so sounds together, right? When you teach them by look, say, or sight reading or whatever the jargon of the day is, okay, you have to have a picture of the fish and you have to repeat it over and over and over and over. For example, the first pre-primer that I had in first grade 
had 622 words in it, but only 20 of those words were different words. Okay, so the name of the book was Tip, you know, Tip the Dog. Tip was repeated 60 times, but of course you had the pictures to go with them. Now, an earlier series by Jin that I have, and I have, I don't think you can see them, I have hundreds of those beside me. Okay, in the Jin series, in the first pre-primer, out of the first 20 words the kids were going to learn to recognize, notice I said recognize, not read, was airplane. Because you see, it was full of pictures of airplanes, and airplane was a long word. Up wasn't introduced until the third book. <laughs> oh, wait, okay, okay, hold on. Wait, 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 wait. I just want to make sure I'm following, Debbie. So what mm -hmm. you're saying is in the early 1900s, kids were being yeah. taught the letter and then the sound of the letter, and then they would be putting those letters together to make words like yes. cat. Yes, cat, yes. But now you get given the word cat and a picture and yes. they then get taught that that's a cat. They don't understand the phonetics of each letter. Is that correct? Yes. Now they do teach, sometimes maybe you would go up to a teacher and you say, do you teach phonics? And they'll say, oh, yes, yes, we do. But it's, it's, it's like everything else, it has been redefined. Now, they do teach initial sounds, and they teach ending sounds. And then basically, you guess in between from the context or the picture or any kind of clues that they have. If, if you would read these teacher's manuals from my first grade curriculum, you would either laugh hysterically, you know, or cry, you know, one of the two. It's very, very sad. But you see, you had to go to a standard basal reading controlled vocabulary because let's say you're in the United States and you grew up in California and I grew up in Ohio and we both moved to Texas next year and we're both going to be in the third grade. Well, we all couldn't have had separate reading lists the base, even if we had different sets of readers, most of the words of the controlled vocabulary would have been the same ones you and I and the kids in Texas had. Elsewise, we couldn't merge into the same third grade class. So you understand you've limited a child's vocabulary when you have done this. So what, what essentially happened was there was this gradual dumbing down of yes. the education of, of children. Purposely. Purposely. Now, when this was invented, I know you've had Alex Newman on your show. Alex is an expert explaining this because he wrote the last book with Sam Blumenfeld. Sam Blumenfeld is deceased now. But, oh, my goodness, he spent his life exposing this. If anybody is interested in this subject, I'd highly recommend the New Illiterates, you know, uh, by Sam Blumenfeld and Alex and Sam's book, Crimes of the Educators. You know, they, they talk about this a great deal. But you've limited the kids purposely. Now, it was invented to begin with for deaf children by Gallaudet. 
Okay, because of course, a, a deaf child couldn't hear sounds. And so they might take, you know, a card with lamp on it and tape it to your lamp. You know, I don't even know if that's how they do that with the, the deaf anymore, but that's how they did it back then. And then they realized, the progressives realized what this could do to our system. And it did. Our, it dumbed our children down. But I want to tell you this. What some people miss is, yes, those basal readers were dumbed down to you had your C-spot, C-run, you know, no, 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 jump, 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 look, look, look. Okay, which definitely had you hanging on the end of your seat, I'm sure. Okay. But, you know, I mean, you know, that's what they had back then, where they used to have real stories. And you see, they had, my point was, they didn't just change those basal readers. They had to change the words in your math book, your geography, your science, and so on. They all had to be dumbed down simultaneously. Now, I do have some science and some histories because I collect these, okay, whenever I find them. And they'll tell you flat out, we use the controlled vocabulary. And they'll tell you, do they line up with the Gates or the Thorndike or whatever list it was? Part of this controlled vocabulary that you speak about in your book um, is Dr. Seuss. Now, I've got, I don't know where it is, but I've got his entire collection somewhere here. I absolutely adore Dr. Seuss, but you you make the point that he was part of the controlled vocabulary. Well, I'm you know I'm not uh, doing the virtues or sins of Dr. Seuss. I'm saying, you know, for for what his what he did as a livelihood, he was paid. I think it was Ramden House, and I have the actual one of the actual old books here it has a picture and an illustration of the cat in the back and tells you right in there that he was given the 223 words of a typical basal uh reader series and he was oh. supposed to incorporate those in that book and what that did was that went ahead and locked those words into the children which made them when they when they were in first grade, see, they were better readers, you see, because they had already learned that controlled vocabulary and it reinforced it. But he did say in an interview with Arizona Magazine in 1981, he said throwing out phonics was the worst thing that was ever done. You see, so I'm sure he made the connection at some point mm. that that was throwing out phonics. So if I was learning... Look, spot, look at age uh -huh. seven. What were seven-year-olds learning in 1900? Well, you would start out just as you would today. If you were teaching a child to read phonetically, generally you would start out with a short vowel sound, generally. Okay. So let's say we were starting out with a short A sound then you're teaching the child to learn to blend with, you know, with C-A-T. They would know that is cat. Well, once you've learned those sounds of the consonants, I mean, you can make bag or bat or hat or, I mean, the kids can read numerous words just from that short A sound. Mm. So you would start out with that. And then as you would teach them this, the short sounds of the rest of the vowels, you would add that till now they understand the mechanism of reading, right? 
Okay, then you would get into your long vowels and the different kind of vowels. People will sit there and say, oh, there's 44 different sounds in the English language. How could anybody learn those? Well, how could you learn the thousands of words in the English language one by one? You know, I got attacked for uh, showing a uh, an exercise from a book where they were teaching the word find. And they had them tracing the word find and then going by shapes to the word find. And then at the end, they got to pick the word from find, funny or blue, which one is find. And they were supposed to circle it. And I got attacked by somebody who supposedly had their master's in reading and told me that that was a perfectly acceptable exercise for the week they learned the word find. Her words, not mine. The week they learned find. But she also added that it might take more exercises and more supplementary materials for you to learn the word find. Sorry. <laughs> were, were children then in the 1900s learning to read more advanced words and more advanced books at a, at a faster pace than today's kids? Yes, absolutely. Because, you know, there was, there was a magazine, Mary Mapes Dodge, that wrote uh, uh, Hans Brinker and the Silver Skates. She was the editor of a children's magazine called St. Nicholas from... 1800s, I think 1880s to, to her death, I think, in the 1900s. And they used to get a monthly magazine, and I have some of those here too. And they would come in the mail and they were thick. And they might have the first couple of chapters from, say, Lord, uh, Little Lord Fauntleroy. And then the next month, you would get the next few chapters of that while simultaneously there might be uh, chapters 9, 10, and 11 from another book in there. So the kids looked forward to those. Even kids who could not read them yet, older siblings or parents would have read these to their children. Now, I don't know whether you have children or not, but reading is a wonderful thing to do with and to your children. And when they are very, very young, you're the one doing the reading. You don't have to read them see, spot, see, you know, run, jump, run. You can read them real material because if there's something that they wouldn't understand or a vocabulary word, you can explain it to them. You're teaching them a great deal and you're teaching them vocabulary when they're so much younger. But the kids also back then knew how to use a dictionary. And that's virtually unheard of anymore. Another point that you make in your book is that children's books a century ago focused on storytelling, perhaps with morals and good messages. Yes. That's all yes. lost now. Yes. Then it flipped to amoral. And then it was a hop, skip, and a jump to immoral. But you see, today, one of the things that exasperates me, because we can, we can go on through this and, and figure out what they're teaching kids today, what kids are reading. But, you know, I have so many parents that say, oh, my children love to read. They read all the time. And the child might be in 11th grade. And they can tell me 
some of them, you know, or the kids can tell me what they're reading. Well, these kids, these books are on very, very, very low reading levels. You know, a lot of the books that they are reading in high school are on a lower level than a Nancy Drew book. So, you know, how does that prepare you for college? You know, you have to assimilate an awful lot of information. So I assume that you read quite a bit and you have to be able to focus. One of the, you know, I've done this for over 35 years and you learn a lot along the way. It's not just taking a book at face value. You know, you learn the patterns. Um, One of the things that I learned is if I would read let's say I'd spend this whole week reading juvenile or young adult books. Okay. And I just read one right after another. Then if I pick up a copy of say Charles Dickens after this huge diet of these kids book, I'll notice that I didn't pay any attention to what I read at all. You know, I have to, Oh my gosh, you have to concentrate, you know, and you have to pay attention to what is actually in the sentence because these books today are not like that. I mean, you could you could listen to heavy metal and and read a book at the same time and still get whatever it's saying. You've taken out the description. Okay, you you have to add a lot more dialogue and things like that to keep it very simple and to keep it dumbed down. But adult books are written that way also. So what do you mean when you refer to high-low books? Okay, that's a wonderful one. Okay, not my term. It's a whole, uh, uh, it's a whole litany of companies that major in high-low books. And this means high interest at very low reading levels. This is incomprehensible. When you bring it to their attention, they'll say, oh, well, we just mean, you know, this is for their English as a second language kids. And that is not true. It's you'll notice because those those publishing companies will tell you themselves what they mean by high interest is they are going to introduce, say, to your ninth to 12th graders. They're going to write books on a first, second or third grade reading level for those ninth to 12th graders. And the only way they can hook them into that is by, you know, sex or violence or profanity or, you know, some some sort of something like that to wheel them in. You know, it's a, it's a huge thing. I've been doing a couple of articles on that. I haven't finished. I want to do a whole series on that, on your reading levels. But it's, it's incomprehensible because what it is doing is deluding a parent or a child into thinking that now they are readers. They're not. You you said reading levels. What are those? Well, you have you have Lexile from Metametrics, you have Accelerated Reader, which is Renaissance Company. And what they do, this becomes the standard. If, for example, an accelerated reader, it might say your child is at a 3.2 reading level. Well, that's easily translated. That's third grade, second month reading level. 
which is where a typical, they say a typical child should be at that level. Now, made of metrics, they will use different sets of numbers. You know, they will use like, for example, 925L, which would be a sixth grade reading level. Okay, that's harder for a parent to understand what that means for their child. But then what they do is they direct your children to read books within that level. But there's so many problems involved with that because are those levels valid to begin with? But William Faulkner, that is, his books are mainly taught in college or AP classes in high school. Okay, they're you have to learn how to read them and understand what you're reading. But they have a little book on accelerated reader that's about this little boy going to his, his two lesbian mom's wedding that day, okay? And it's for, you know, it's a picture book. The picture book for kids. It's Lesbian. written- For yes. kids. Oh, yes. Yes, this starts at birth. This starts at birth. I'll finish this and then, we'll, and then we'll go to that. Okay. That book is just a little picture book with just a few hundred words. It is listed at exactly the same reading level as William Faulkner, which is laughable for anybody who has ever read Faulkner. How they do that, though, I, I've looked at these things for so long. How, you know, I have 15 grandchildren. I had four children. <laughs> I know how toddlers talk and young children they might say I went to grandma's house and we had ice cream and then she fixed me a so-and-so and then a cupcake and then she sent me home with with uh, a new puppy and then we went to the store and she promised me that we'd go to the carnival next week and you see we have this long long run-on sentence but the computer algorithm that is setting up these reading levels is not able to separate contextual things see they can only do the con the concrete things. And one of the ways that I do explain that is if I wrote a book, a little board book, and on page one, I had one cat, O-N-E with a number one and cat. And the next page, I had a picture of one cat. And the next page was two and so forth all the way to 10. Okay. Child would not technically have to know how to read at all, right? I mean, they're looking at that. That's obviously going to be one, and that's a cat. So you could sit there and say, look, my child's already reading. But your child isn't reading. It just had a lick of sense. But now, what if I wrote the second book in the series, and it was one rhinoceros? Which one would be the higher reading level, even though the child didn't have to know how to read either one of them to read it, you see? The, the rhinoceros, of course, will come up with this higher reading level. So before we go back to the transgender and the lesbian and all of those things in books, let me finish with the boxcar children, okay? So the book I actually have from the second one in that series flat out says that anybody with a basic second grade basal readers should be able to read that. Now, if you go to Accelerated Reader, that is listed at a fourth grade second month, I think. Fourth grade second month, which was only intended back then to be on a second grade reading level. And it had 23,000 words, just under 23,000 words. Now, listen, now they had to make it a graphic novel, comic book, 
You had to take a book that was dumbed down to begin with, with a controlled vocabulary. And now you've made it a comic book form with 20,000 fewer words. So you've got a little less than 3,000 words in the graphic novel, and it is listed at a higher level than the original dumbed down Surprise Island was supposed to be in 1942 or 49, whenever it was published. I know, I know it's confusing and it's, and they know that it's confusing. The point is, I hear this all the time. Kids are so much smarter today. Kids are so much smarter today. Kids are so much smarter today. No, they were dumbed down. We were dumbed down. You're younger than me. I was dumbed down. So were you. Okay, and now look at every guest that you've ever had on your program. See, I don't make this that that the book issue is the whole issue in the whole wide world. And once people know the book issue, the whole planet's going to be saved. I'm trying to tell you that this is a vital piece of the puzzle that all of these people that you have on their show, they're they're upset they're because they have what is now called an alternative view instead of a real view of all these issues because the mainstream media is taught one thing, right? And we learn something else. Well, where did all of these ideas come from? A lot of them came from the books because through books, you shape a child's worldview. You shape adults' worldviews through these things. Then you add the school curricula, you add movies, you add television, you add music, you add video games. All of these things, the mainstream media, social media, all of these things work together to reinforce those ideas that are appalling to us. So mine is not to be somebody's guru. The first thing anybody ever asks me is, where's your good list and your bad list? I don't make those. I'm not your guru. This is your families, your children. What you need to be aware of is you need to look inside. Now, when you had your first wake up moment, I don't know how old you were, but when you realized that everything wasn't as you were hearing it was, first thing you learned, if you can go back and remember that moment, you thought, oh, everyone's going to want to know this, right? I mean, you were so zealous. Now, how long did it take before you realized, no, everybody doesn't want to know this? You see, everybody doesn't want to know the truth or we wouldn't be in the mess that we are. So, and and when it came to the books, parents assumed that they were safe and neutral. You know, I told you I've done this for decades and I still run into people that are totally shocked that DAMN is in a kid's book. And I come flat out in every program and say, I have one book with over 1,300 F words, a book that is marketed to Young adults from Simon & Schuster Children's Publishing Division, over 1,300 F-words, 900 serious other swear words, and those 2,000 words in that book are the nicest part of the book. And let that set in. Let's do a pregnant pause here. Those 2,000 words are the nicest part of the book. Those five books that they published, they might have published another one by now, by that particular author, there is 
nothing in there that you would not expect to find if you were going to a triple X back alley adult bookstore that you would expect to be rated. You know, you have high school kids in this book where you have the girl getting it from both ends at the same time from two different guys. I mean, with basically begging for more of it. These That's your young adult, your ninth to 12th graders. This is typical. This is typical. You see, this is why you have so many people now that are finally addressing these things. You know, I've been, this stuff has been going on for over 50 years. I mean, the books were changing before that, but as far as the sexual things, they've been going on for over 50 years. This isn't new. And people will say, oh, you know, anybody that brings out some of these things, they'll say, oh, well, you're just LGBT phobic or something. No, the, the case I was just giving you had nothing to do with a lesbian or or anything like that. You know, whether it's heterosexual sex or whatever kind of sex it is, is that appropriate? And you could not sell my minor grandchildren a Playboy if you worked in a convenience store, right? But these publishers get away with it. Who's going to fight them when the same corporations own them all? Who's going to fight it? Who has enough money to fight it? They get away with it. It's already illegal. Schools in in the United States, schools and librarians have what is called obscenity exemptions. What that means is if you read and did these things to my grandchildren, you'd be in prison for a very long time and you'd be registered if you ever got out. But when they do it, it's considered for educational purposes. So now you, you think about that. I mean, these books, there, there is nothing, nothing left out of these books. Nobody would even believe it if I sat here and read off quotes that I don't even want to read. I mean, you, you have no idea. No idea what is acceptable in kids' books. But even if you threw out all of the sex and all of the profanity, you would still have the same worldview with these kids. You know, they're being shaped. You hate America. You hate, uh, you know, you hate God. Um, Everything that you are for, the kids are taught to be against in these books. They build up a relationship with the main character. That's why books are you have to take them more seriously than you do. Um, a lot of people have watched Escape from Alcatraz. Okay, and I, I bring this up a lot. Who were you rooting for? You were rooting for criminals to escape. I mean, let's face it, okay? The same thing happens. The kids get a bond with the protagonist in these stories. And so things that maybe before were not acceptable in what they had been taught, but all of a sudden as they keep seeing it over and over and over in books, curriculums, and all these different things, all these things become normalized to them. They become accepted to them. The other deadly way that they get the kids, and this one's harder to describe, is by omission. 
An omission simply means you take any vile character, you know, that you can think of, let's say politically. All right. Just put that one in your mind. And you write a little picture book about them with a few hundred words. And you're talking about what a darling little child they were and how everybody loved them and they helped the neighbor weed their garden and so on and so forth and beautiful illustrations. But you left out how they murdered six million people or, you know, any of those vital points that you and I might consider necessary, those were omitted. By omitting those very vital things, you've given the child a different takeaway in that book than reality. See, and so, so many of these books, you know, they, they push police brutality or any of these issues. Is there some police brutality? Of course. But when you read these little books for children, oh my gosh, it's almost like every white policeman is just waiting for a black child. I finished one, one um, just recently where it was, a um, security guard and somebody had said there was somebody in the store waving a gun. And here was this, this black boy buying a suit for the first time. And the guy mistook the coat hanger for a gun. You know, that happens a lot, you know, the coat hangers to guns and blew him away and killed him. Okay. So in the same book, you have what I call name dropping. I mean, this is every book, not just that one. You have to bring up Black Lives Matter. You have to bring up climate change. Whatever the new things are that ideas that are foisted Trons. on the kids. Yeah, it's, it's as if you put all of those things in your story, you're going to get published. See, it's just like you're, you're doing a checkoff list. And, and just, just again, this is children's books. Yes, that's all I talk about. That's all I talk about is children's books. Okay, okay. so you seem surprised that there were things for the very young. Well, you're not going to have the graphic sexuality in your books for juveniles or your, your preschoolers. Okay, you're not going to have that. But you are going to introduce every idea you want them to have. Like a girl and a girl. Yes. Yeah. You, well, you know, that they'll have a book for three or four year olds, you know, telling how you might be a boy. Or mm. um, I noticed that uh, J.P. Sears today had one of his new clips where he was talking about now they're not just using pronouns. Now, you know, they're using nouns to identify themselves. And I kept thinking, well, that's not new, JP, because I have, I don't even know what the name of it is now, but there's another book and it, it told them years ago, they could be a flower or a tree. So they had little kids called three. So think about it. If you're an English teacher, how in the world are you going to teach pronouns today when you might be a they? or a Z, or a he, or a tree, or a flower. You see, you've thrown language to the wind. You've redefined everything so that we cannot have real conversations anymore unless I specifically stop and say, what is it exactly that you mean by that definition? So that I know what page you're on and how to respond to that. Here is one. Well, this is probably around four to nine-year-old kids. 
Something Happened in Our Town is about the shooting of a black man by a policeman. The page reads, Was the man that caught shot dangerous? asked Emma. No, her mother said. Shooting him was a mistake. It was a mistake that's part of a pattern. But this pattern is being nice to white people and mean to black people. It's an unfair pattern. Okay. Okay. Now, wait a minute. Now, who published that? Imagination Press. People look at that. Well, you know, what's Imagination Press? That's your American Psychological Association. These are books from your American Psychological Association. Yes. I list quite a few of those in my book. Now, listen to this one. Race Cars is a children's book about white privilege. This is for your little kids. This is a picture book also. We have always given white cars the fastest tires and the most powerful engines, they roared. How could a black car have won? As the cars continue racing through the magical forest, the black cars are always stopped, but not the white ones. Various obstacles make it near impossible for a black car to win. Now, I could go on and on and on. I mean, there's hundreds, hundreds just like that. What ideas are your children picking up? How many times does that idea have to be presented to them in whatever way, whether it's TV, television, books, whatever, before it is solidified in the child's mind? In America, the children are basically taught nothing other than how to be a social activist and to use emotional words on how to get their way. So you keep presenting all of these things the systemic racism, the climate change, all these different causes, and now they're already trained to be an activist. But, you know, I am, I had to stop and think, I'm 64, okay? You know, when we were kids, I didn't have to think how I was going to fix America. I didn't think that if I didn't do something at the ripe old age of seven, the world was gonna blow up or it was gonna be my fault. I didn't have to think where Greta Thunberg teaches the kids, the adults will not do something, so we have to. You think about that. If I gave you the reins of the world tomorrow, you couldn't fix all of this. Do you think a seven-year-old can? You look at the suicide rates of all these little kids. Well, would you really want to live if you thought everything in the world was up to you? It was all up to you to fix. And it's not fixed. And then there's a new problem and a new disaster. Look what we are doing to these kids. The kids are dumbed down. So when you cannot focus to read scholarly papers and understand them, then I'm at the mercy of you telling me what it means. Now, if you have my utmost respect, whether you're telling the truth or you're not, see, I might follow you or not follow you based on that, not based on real knowledge. You know, look at what happened during the pandemic. Look at the control factor. You look at the people who just willingly, anything 
that was told them. How did we get to a point like that when we used to have people that could think, even, even during the revolution, you know, back in colonial days before the revolution started, you had a very literate society, very literate society. Even your common people could read things today that would be given as material in college. You know, so, you know, one of the books, I don't know if you know who Ruth Bader Ginsburg was, you know, who was a Supreme Court justice here in the United States. Okay, and, and she was very liberal. But there are multitudes of little kids' picture books about Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Two of them are board books. A board book is simply the first books that you give a child because they can chew on them, okay? So you have a book with a few words. So one of the two-page spreads, and there's what, maybe 12, 14 pages in one of these board books, a two-page spread shows her holding up the Supreme Court building, and it says, Ruth is strong. Of course, as she's holding it, the building's leaning to the left. <laughs> okay. I'll have to bring that up. <laughs> I thought it was to the right to begin with, but then I realized how she was standing. Okay. But what would be your purpose of that being one of the earliest books that you buy for your baby? Who is it indoctrinating, you or your child? And do you think that you're woke because you bought that book instead of Pat the Bunny? So what you're saying to me, Debbie, is that uh, books in the 1900s for children were sort of moral and instructional and they taught, uh, they, they had substance and they had messages. Now mm -hmm. they're just all about indoctrination and propaganda and narratives. Yes. Yes. You know, that's just it. But you have a whole population now that the only thing they're concerned about is sex or the critical race theory. And it's way beyond that because it starts at birth. And, you know, if you have your child in, in a daycare, you don't know what they're reading to the kids and what they're being taught. You know, we think all of this just happened in the 2000s. This started decades ago. And, you know, I wish that I could show you all of the books for, for little kids. Each year, I try to bring out all the new books that are coming out, uh, you know, for the little kids to show you the indoctrination. I have one. I don't know if I have. I have yeah, here's a picture if you can see it. I don't know. Well, let me see. Yeah, but anyway, it's a, yeah, I can't do it. It's a, um, a pregnant father, a, a picture book for little tiny kids. The Light of You, yes, and so they have the two dads there, and of course the one dad is pregnant, and they're all looking forward to, to the baby. What they do when, if there's anything you want to introduce or any lifestyle that you want to introduce, take LGBTQ for instance, when they have the two moms, they are so superhuman. They're so superhuman. Everybody would wish that they had had two lesbian moms instead of the mom and dad they have. Because, you know, one book I read, the one was a pediatrician. The other one was a paramedic. 
Okay. And then they would come home and they'd have these fabulous meals that they would cook of an evening. And then they would have friends over and there'd be opera music in the background. And you'd be talking about all these intellectual things. Okay. And then there was going to be a mother daughter tea. And so the one, the pediatrician mother, after she had pediatricianed all day, and they had their dinner with all their intellectual conversation, then she made four dresses in two nights. Okay, four dresses for them for this mother daughter tea. Now, you can look blankly at that. But if I could turn my screen around, you would see the whole room is filled with different types of sewing machines because I sew. I would not be able to pediatrician all day and come home and have this wonderful meal and then go up at the sewing machine and cut out four dresses and sew them in two nights. Then the kids have the flu. Four kids have the flu. So what do they do? They bring them home two puppies. <laughs> now, I tell you, there's no normal mom on the planet that would pick that time to bring two puppies home to the kids. So you see what I'm saying? But what idea does the child pick up? Remember, these are children at the age where, where parents have taught them that there's a Santa Claus, that there's an Easter bunny. You know, you can tell these kids, my dad's favorite thing to do with each of my kids was they would get a $5 bill for a gift. And my dad would offer them two monies for the $5, you know, two $1 bills, you know, trying to teach them about money. He loved doing that, you know. And but you see, kids are vulnerable. They're gullible. We're supposed to protect them, teach them not indoctrinate them before they're, they have any kind of background material that they can pull from to know whether you're lying to them or you're telling the truth. And this is why I like what I do, because so many times, you know, um, you're listening to people and you don't really have any way of knowing what they know and checking it out and knowing whether it's right or not. But when I talk about books or anything like that, you can look them up yourself. If you can prove to me that, that that isn't even in there or anything, I'll start sleeping better at night, okay? But you can look at this, and once you start seeing how they have done it to little tiny children, hopefully your eyes start opening and you start understanding how it's done in every other area of your life. Debbie, what is the role then of a teacher Good question. Good question. You know, I tell everybody, I, I agree with Alex Newman on this one. Get your kids out. You don't need to waste, you know, if you want to go, you know, harp at the, the, the board meetings and say what's going on, do it after you've pulled your children out. Pull your children out first. They cannot survive it. It's strategic. The public schools are the most successful institution there's ever been because they have done exactly what they set out to accomplish. You can't fix something that is not broken. They are doing what they set out to do. Are, are you suggesting homeschooling? I love homeschooling, if you're really homeschooling. Yeah, I think homeschooling is great. Um, you even have to watch some private schools now because, you know, they're falling under different federal regulations. Anytime, you know, you take a string from the government, then 
then, you know, you're going to be squelched in some way or the other. So, I mean, we are in, in very, very dark days. We really are. But yes, the first thing I would say is, is get the kids out. They can't, they can't survive it. You know, everybody says, oh, well, you can work with them at night. You know, you don't know what they have. You don't know what seeds were planted that day. And now that everything is done basically on these Google screens, things can be changed. You don't see it. You don't really know what they have. You don't know what they're getting. You know, and if a child, let's put it this way, kids are very susceptible to peer pressure. Adults are susceptible to peer pressure. So you put them in a classroom and, you know, you come in and you say, well, kids, I just want to tell you today, don't call me Jeremy anymore. I'm Jill. Okay. If my child stood up and said, no, you're still a man. He would be so ostracized that he would learn immediately to keep his mouth shut because he doesn't want to go through the peer hatred, you know, dissing, isolating, the whole bit. And you don't always learn these things at home. The child doesn't always tell you these things. So you don't know what they're getting. You know, if you do homeschool, you, you know what your child is getting or not getting. It takes a lot of discipline, though. It's not something to do just willy-nilly. How do, how do parents push back? Because we're talking about a system now that has been in place for decades. Mm-hmm. Well, the first thing is you have to be aware. If you thought every book that was in the children's section was safe and neutral, I've just told you that no, it's not. Okay, so that's your that's your first step. So now you're understanding that there are things going on that you haven't been aware of. So now you know that you need to be looking at this. You know, um, I have to I have to stop and bring one thing out because I know that we're, we're running out of time. This is very important. I just did an article on my website on this, but it is the issue of audiobooks. See, it isn't a matter what you can go to the school library and pull off the shelf or even your public library and pull off your shelf. They all have digital libraries now. All you do is enter your library card number and you download the book instantly. But, you know, and so you might, when you think your kid is safe and sound in their room and they're not out running around with the hoodlums, okay, you're so proud of them. They're in there reading, I mean, worse than porn, okay? But now a lot of those books a lot of them are also available as ebook audiobooks. And I'm telling you, the sex in some of these books you could not imagine. It's almost like you are having free phone sex. And this is what the kids are doing because the other thing they can do is they can, when they get to the certain point, they can backtrack it and listen to it over and over and over. So now you're not just reading the words, you have somebody saying these things to you. Do you understand the repercussions of that? So basically parents need to read everything first. 
Yes, but of course, they're not going to do that. This is the biggest thing. So the, the most frequent, I have a whole chapter on this. The most frequently asked question I get is, well, do you have a good list and a bad list? Well, I can tell you, if there was a bad choice to make when I was a kid, I did it. Okay. If there would have been a bad list of all of the books that you weren't supposed to read, I would have read every one of them. And I'm not alone in that. Many, many kids would do that. When you make a list of good books, there are a lot of good books. That doesn't mean that you or I are going to agree with every idea in that book. But it doesn't make it not a good book. What I did with my kids was I'd read it. And if I saw something in there that I thought was left too open or needed further discussion or whatever, I'd just say, hey, when you get to page 83, you know, let's talk about that. You see, but maybe you wouldn't do that and it would affect your child adversely. You see, so you can't really do that. A good list. I mean, you can't trust book descriptions either. Like you can go on to Accelerated Reader and you will have one book that says that it has uh, pervasive profanity. And then you look at the next one that has more F words than that one. And it will not even list that there's any profanity in the book. So you can't trust the reviews. You know, I do cover that in the in the book, too. I even show famous reviewers, you know, and, it, and they certainly didn't read the book. The one thing that I wanted to read to you, if I can find it. OK, this was the abstract from a study that was done on children. Now, this wasn't a huge study, but I think you'll be interested in the abstract. They did a test getting kids to try to eat insects, okay? Interest in eating the insects has increased in Western countries. However, substantial challenges exist regarding acceptability and cultural ideas. Researchers have widely studied the acceptance of eating insects, but few studies have focused on children's thoughts. The aim of this study is to explore young children's perceptions about eating insects and how this insight might help understanding of ways to increase the willingness to eat insects. So now we don't just want you eating the insects, we want you to be willing to do so. So when you plant these ideas, you might have a 300 page kids book and there might be one sentence on page 42, but the next book has a page with the name dropping about the same topic and on and on and the overpopulation and the climate change and it's your responsibility. This is what the kids are getting. Not to mention that they could be a boy, a girl. I have a whole chapter on being their authentic self. So when now all of a sudden you're Jill instead of Jeremy, okay, now you're your authentic self. Now explain that one to me. You're only authentic after you have a new identity. And this is what the kids are learning. And you can only listen to somebody if they're an authentic voice. That's the other thing you're going to hear from the kids, that there has to be an authentic voice that unless you are transgender, I can't really listen to, to you. I can't read anything about the transgender issue unless it's coming from the mouth of a transgender. 
What about the parents who buy these books? Well, you have in America, you have even Christian schools that will sit here and have scholastic book fairs. You know, why you would do that, I have no, yeah, I mean, I'm at a loss for words on that one, you know, because they are pushing all of these different ideas. Um, but people do, they, they buy them. There goes Dog Friend. Um, they buy these books. I mean, you look at huge publishers like Simon & Schuster. They publish conservative voices, too. You see? I mean, I mean, most of these, they'll have an imprint, like we might say tree books. And nobody knows what tree books are. They think that you just designed that yesterday. But then you'll find out when you look it up, tree books belongs to some conglomerate, large publishing company. It's just one of their imprints. So, so if, it's very, very hard to track. If I could ask you for some closing thoughts, then what would you say? I say something very unpopular. You do need to read what your kids are reading before, actually. You know, it's easy if you are a young parent, you can start building a library so readily when they're young and you've got time to do so. Uh, if a woman is pregnant, take a day, go to the library, don't check the books out, just go to the, the youngest readers and pull 25 or 50 books. You know, they take you five minutes to read, okay? And just sit down there on one of their nice couches and sit here, I don't like that one. Yay, I like this one. Write down what the name of it is and start building your own library so that the kids, and don't make it just what you like. If you're into horses, don't make every book on the shelf about horses or dogs or, you know, or Nancy Drew, you know, or mysteries. Have a variety of different things that the children can read so that when they're in the mood to read, they have something available to them. How can I find your book and your website, etc.? Okay, the book is only available on my website, okay? I did make a Kindle version available on Amazon because there were people from Canada and other countries that wanted the book, and it was 20 bucks, you know, just to ship a book. And so anyway, I have that on there. My book is more like a textbook, you know? I don't know if you could tell that from the, the PDF, but it's it is more like a textbook. You have a lot of charts. You have a lot of things like that. So it's much easier if you actually have the book. Uh, if they want to contact me, they can go to my website, which is whatchinsidechildrensbooks.com. And there's a contact form up there where they can send me a note and I will get back with them. But, but I thank you so much for having me. But it is such a broad topic. People think it's a simple subject. And so it seems like we've been all over the map. But technically, there are so many different areas to this that we could spend hours just on one aspect. We could spend hours just on the transgender books for babies. Debbie DeGroff, thank you so much for joining me in the trenches. Thank you for having me. I can tell I really cheered you up today. <laughs> <laughs> If you enjoyed this podcast, please visit supportgerm.com.